In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Have you ever thought to yourself, why has XYZ person never been named a Disney legend? Well, me too, and so has today's guest, Aaron Wallace, who was most recently on Notably Disney last spring when we discussed the music from High School Musical, the musical of the series. So more than 200 people have been named as Disney legends to date, with the ceremony originally held every year and since the launch of D23 in 2009, each D23 Expo. Many of these individuals are extraordinary people in the world of music, including Alan Menken, Richard M. and Robert B. Sherman, Jody Benson, Julie Andrews, and Hans Zimmer. However, a good number of people have yet to be recognized, and that's the task that Aaron and I are up for taking in the first of what I call our notably Disney Sorcerer's Hat series, where we put on our dreamer's caps and envision what would happen if we called the shots. Needless to say, this ended up being a really lengthy conversation, uh, so I wanted to split this up into two episodes, so you'll hear Aaron and my first set of selections in this episode and more to come in the next episode. So let's get right to that conversation. Over nearly 35 years, Disney legends have been awarded to individuals who have made an indelible impact on the Walt Disney Company. Some have served as Imagineers, executives, actors, animators, or in other capacities. Considering we at Notably Disney concentrate much of our content on music, it only seemed fitting to put on our imaginary sorcerer's hats Um, and call the shots on who associated with the Walt Disney Company who has lent their talents in music-based ways, who of them should be awarded as Disney legends in the future. So this is kind of a fun exercise where we're uh, just envisioning what we would do if we had all the power uh, in the world, in the world of Disney. Um, And up for the task along with me is many time returning guest, Aaron Wallace, who's an author, 
podcaster, and today part of an Armchair Disney Legends nominations committee. So uh, welcome back to Notably Disney, Aaron. Thank you, Brett. Uh, so great to be back on the show. And there is no armchair I would rather sit in uh, for the morning than one in which we get to choose our own Disney Legends. Yeah, it's a really fun topic. Um, you and I had talked offline about the idea of really wanting to um, give more attention to folks who are maybe a bit more um, under-recognized or should be at the very least honored in, in such a magnificent way for Disney for their contributions over the years and a variety of different ways in the uh, umbrella of music. Um, so we could be talking about um, singers, theatrical uh, performers, actors and actresses, lyricists, musicians, um, other folks who, who have some connection to music based on their roles over the years. So um, there's a really a lot of different uh, directions we can take this with. Um, mind you, we recognize that um, Disney legends have been around, um, as I said, for about 35 years now. So a number of different folks have been honored, but needless to say, there are a lot who haven't been. Um, and so before we uh, were recording now, we had actually individually come up with 10 selections each. Um, the only criteria is that, that they would have worked for Disney at some point in their careers be involved in music in some capacity and that obviously that they've not already been honored as a Disney legend. Um, we don't know one another's picks. Obviously there might be some overlap and I imagine we'll have a lot to talk about um, in terms of how and why we selected them, share some notable projects that they've been associated with and even relay some memories of their work. So uh, it, was, it was definitely an undertaking for me, even though I have some people who I've wanted to mention. What was, what was your experience like in assembling your picks, Aaron? Gosh, well, as you said, Brett, so many people have already received this honor, and yet there are so many more who are just truly deserving. Uh, and I think even quite a few people who the average Disney fan would be surprised to learn uh, have not yet been given this honor. And so I, you know, I sat down initially with a list of like 30 some people, all of whom have a connection in some way to music uh, as part of the Disney legacy, uh, all of whom I, I feel are, are very much deserving. So the hard part was, you know, selecting 10 out of 30 some, uh, but uh, I'm so excited to hear who your choices are and whether we have any overlap. Absolutely. And, and I think I wanted to also just recognize just the notion of Disney legends, you know, over the years, um, it, the individuals who have been honored with this range from someone like Julie Andrews, who technically has only been involved with a few Disney projects like Mary Poppins and um, more recently, The Princess Diaries, or people um, as prolific as Alan Menken, whose work for Disney encompasses so many different films. And, and other projects. So I think we need to also uh, just kind of take into consideration and, and let our listeners know that some Disney legends have worked intensely for the company for many, many years. Others have only really offered a few projects, but they have been so significant um, in just our general culture and the lasting legacy of Disney that um, it would be a shame not to recognize them. So uh, quantity and quality probably very much vary among folks who have been honored to date. To date and also um, perhaps um, we'll see that range with the individuals we honor as well. That's right. And I'm so glad you highlighted Julie Andrews specifically uh, because I, I have this uh, sort of 
policy that I think of as the Julie Andrews rule when it comes to assessing someone's worth or merit as a Disney legend, uh, which is exactly the point you made. Uh, Julie Andrews, I mean, she, she's had a handful of minor contributions to the Walt Disney Company over the years, uh, but it's really ultimately just the one role, uh, the role as Mary Poppins that I think would bring her into the club and certainly has brought her into the club because she is a Disney legend. But, but my thinking is, if Julie Andrews is not a Disney legend, then who is? And I think that's a, a useful sort of um, guideline or golden rule to keep in mind uh, that it really is about the overall weight of one's impact on the legacy, at least to my thinking, that determines um, worthiness in terms of being inducted. Yeah, I think you absolutely got that right. I think Julie Andrews is really the epitome of so so few contributions, but they but particularly when she was first honored, it was I think solely based on her role in Mary Poppins was just so um, it, I can't think of a better word than impactful that it, it just illustrates that it's not always the 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 wealth of work, but but just being so the perfect person to hold a specific capacity, and in her case, it was an actress at, and as a singer as well um, in in that uh, title role. So. Um, I think it's just really vital to illustrate that there is that, that range in, in people have been recognized and also to know um, you do not have to be living to be a Disney legend. A number of folks have been recognized posthumously as well. Yeah, that's a great point. And I also think it's helpful to draw the distinction between the Disney Legends Award and a Disney Employees Award. And certainly there have been various recognition programs over the years to honor Disney cast members and certainly many Disney legends are or have been uh, officially employed by the company at some point uh, but I think you know to sort of focus the Disney legends honor on quantity of contributions to the company you know sort of on the payroll um, would really drift away from the spirit of the award which is ultimately I mean I always look at in addition to Julie Andrews uh, I look at Fred McMurray as being sort of the prototype because he was the very first inductee right and so I think his induction sort of establishes um a, a legacy uh, for the Disney Legends Award. And you look at Fred McMurray, I mean, he had a number of notable contributions to Disney, Disney, but so much of his career was, was for other studios. You know, he was in My Three Sons, for example, is probably what most people came to know him for. And so I think someone can even be best known uh, out for their work outside of the Disney company and still absolutely deserve the honor. Yeah, that's a really good point there, Aaron. And you mentioned Fred McMurray, who, as you recognize, is the first Disney legend. And that's because in 1987, he was the only person uh, that you're recognized as a Disney legend. And of course, since then, um, a number of people each year um, have been recognized. But as of 20, uh, 2009, when D23 Expo started, it became where Disney legends were honored every two years. So with every um, D23 Expo, and um, because we will not see a D23 Expo uh, now in 2021, but rather next year, um, one might assume that the legends uh, may be reserved until that year. So consequently, it's only every two years that we're seeing, I don't know, anywhere from eight to 10, 11, 12 people being recognized. So it is, it is an elite club to be a part of for sure. 
That's right. And, you know, as someone who has always loved the whole idea of the Disney Legends Award, I've always sort of followed it, even in the pre-Expo days, to now have the opportunity as an Expo attendee to be uh, in the room where it happens, so to speak, uh, and, and get to attend that induction ceremony as an audience member. It is so thrilling. I mean, I have never attended the Oscars or the Grammys, but I imagine it has that same sort of feel. Um, just there's such energy and excitement in the room. And there's a feeling that you are witnessing something uh, of, of historical worth, uh, at least in the entertainment industry. Uh, and I, I know, uh, and I know you've had the chance to attend the expo, Brett, have you been able to attend the induction ceremony? Yeah, you know, it's actually uh, the first expo in 09, as well as the one in 2011. Uh, mind you, I've been to a couple of other expos as well. But yeah, for 09 and 11, I saw those legend ceremonies live. So it was, you know, in retrospect, I'm thinking, wow, how amazing it was to see folks like Betty White and Robin Williams and Jody Benson and Paige O'Hara and so many of these um, folks who also have connections um, to music, although I'm not sure if Maybe I'm not sure if Betty White has sung in the Disney film, but um, or production. But nonetheless, these really just iconic figures in Hollywood and also Disney to be honored and to be in their presence during this momentous occasion was quite a thrill. Um, how about you? What have your connections been? Yeah, I've I've had the chance to do it a few times now, and that has included. Um, the chance to see some of my all-time favorite entertainers inducted. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg, who I think I've mentioned on your show before, I'm just such a huge fan. <laughs> yes. I got to see that happen. Uh, Bette Midler, uh, of course, she wasn't able to be there in person, but her daughter uh, accepted on her behalf. And so, I mean, not only is it thrilling to see any Disney legends inducted, but to be there for some of my all-time favorite entertainers, period, uh, has been quite a treat. And uh, on, the, on the notion of, or on the subject of Betty White, uh, I was not able to see her inducted, unfortunately, and I don't know whether she's ever <laughs> performed vocally or ever sung in a Disney um, work. I don't know if, she, did she get a chance to sing in Prep and Landing? I'm not sure, but uh, you, it raises a good point, Brett, which is something that I like about the framework we've established for today's discussion is that even if someone is principally worthy of the Disney Legends Award for non-musical contributions, they're still going to fall within the framework of today's discussion so long as they do have some sort of a musical tether. I think that's really important that you establish because we had uh, briefly chatted about that um, prior to developing our respective lists because it could even be where, as you're saying, they're most known for, for instance, an acting role, but maybe they sung a few lyrics in a film, and maybe you, you know, one could make the argument that they could make the list. I was one person I'll say who I'm not recognizing, but I've ultimately felt he has long deserved to be a Disney legend um, is Tom Hanks, who technically oh, wow. is not known as a singer or performer, but he did sing a tiny little bit in Toy Story too, and I'm like. Uh, does that count? And um, and I decided to to make the call. You know what? Um, I I don't think he quite makes uh, this list, but I think for his work as uh, Woody and in um, so many hits, Splash, Turner and Hooch, Saving Mr. Banks, among others, um, he is quite uh, quite made a mark on the Walt Disney Company. But unfortunately, Mr. Hanks, as much as I love the guy, uh, he is not being recognized today. So I do want to make that qualification <laughs> that someone like him, he technically could have fit for singing a tiny little bit of uh, You've Got a Friend in Me, but nope. Sorry. Yeah. 
<laughs> I would have accepted it, Brett, but also I think that's totally a fair call to choose to focus on other candidates uh, today. But yeah, what a shocker, by the way, that Tom Hanks has not yet been inducted. And I think <laughs> yeah. uh, if if Disney is looking for star power at those ceremonies, as does often seem to be the case these days, then Tom Hanks is sort of a glaring omission. And I can't imagine we'll go too much longer without uh, him being there. And who knows, maybe they will highlight his singing performance uh, during the ceremony. Uh, but I do have one person sort of like that in my list uh, whose contributions are primarily outside of the musical sphere, but nevertheless, that connection does exist. But uh, I'll save that for, for the discussion. Okay, let's, let's then get right into it, Aaron. How about you take us away with our first selection? Okay, so the very first person I chose for the list is Susan Egan. Uh, and I don't know if I'm saying, I don't know if it's Egan or Egan, but uh, Susan Egan, I believe, is, uh, of course, probably best known to Disney fans as the voice of Megara uh, in Hercules. But also, uh, she originated the role of Belle in um, Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. And to me, this is just one of those names that it's constantly a surprise that she hasn't yet been inducted because we all sort of know that for the most part, the voices of the Disney princesses have been, right? Uh, so you've got your Pedro Harris, your Jody Benson's, your Leia Salongas. And I tend to think of Susan Egan as part of that same club. Uh, but of course, technically she isn't, right? Because Megara is not quote unquote, a Disney princess. And uh, Susan as Belle on Broadway uh, wasn't part of that initial collection or induction of the princess club uh, and so she's just this very notable outlier there uh, but such a talent uh, and I think just those two very very significant contributions on their own uh, really sort of lend urgency to her induction uh, but also she's done a few other notable things too I mean she lent her voice to Lady in the Tramp 2 Scamp's Adventure uh, I can't recall whether she sings in that uh, uh, but also she uh, lent her voice to the 2002 English dub for Spirited Away uh, which is a Miyazaki film but Disney did um, produce the English dub and distributed that in the United States uh, she was on an episode of Modern Family. Uh, very recently, she was part of the Disney Plus series Encore, uh, where she appeared as sort of an ambassador for Disney theatrical. And so for all these reasons, I would love to see her inducted. So we are off to a strong start, Aaron. And let me tell you, Susan Egan is also on my list. So um, I think uh, great minds think alike here. Um, so yeah, I, I love your selection and I am totally with you it's worth really honoring the fact that Disney theatrical is a whole new branch of the company and taking a film like Beating the Beast, which was so lauded by the public as being not only one of the best animated films to date, but also one of the best musicals. And for, if you recall the story when it was first premiering in New York and the film got a standing ovation. People were just enthralled with this and Disney knew they had something. Um, they were onto something with this story and, and ultimately beating the beast as a brand and to take it to Broadway and to cast Susan Egan as this up and coming actress as the, the main role. Um, that was, you know, in a sense, it, it's, a, it's a bet when you're starting something completely new and, and all the people that you're involving, they have to be top notch and, Susan Egan delivered. Um, her voice is a 
you know, attached to the soundtrack from the original Broadway cast. And you mentioned Meg from Hercules. Um, she also provided the voice for Meg in the Kingdom Hearts uh, series of video mm-hmm. games. I also have a note. You, I'm glad you mentioned some of her other um, smaller roles. She was also in the uh, 2002 Disney Channel film Gotta Kick It Up, which I completely forgot about. But um, <laughs> but then I remembered. Oh yeah, she played the the, the um, one of the instructors, the teachers in that film, um, and she was the singing voice of of Angel um, in Lady and the Tramp too. So there were a couple of times where we heard her voice there. Um, so. Yeah, it's someone who's still attached to the company because even though there's not a current role per se that she's playing, she's one of those folks who, when they have some of the Disney Broadway concerts, whether it be on cruises or at Epcot or in other spaces, or wherever they highlight their Disney theatrical talent, Susan Egan is often part of the mix. Um, and that's a real testament to her legacy and contributions for nearly 30 years now. Yeah, that's all well said. And I'm so glad that she is on your list too. You know, I just think of, uh, for example, the song Home, uh, which in my Mm. mind is really one of the greats of the Beauty and the Beast musical library. And, you know, she originated that song. It it is her voice who we all know singing it by virtue of that cast recording. Uh, And of course, so many other contributions to that cast recording as well. And I believe someone can, a listener perhaps can fact check me on this, but I believe that she has also lent her voice to a number of these um, sort of kid targeted uh, Disney music releases, these CDs that are sold for like $2 on a shelf at, you know, what used to be Toys R Us or, or Walmart or what have you, that's maybe like six tracks of just sort of generic princess songs that don't come from a movie, uh, which is really a little cottage industry that Disney has unto itself. I mean, there are like a hundred of these albums. And uh, I do believe that she has lent her voices, uh, her voice to a number of those as well. Wow, that's interesting. Huh. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think we, we highlighted two of her, her main roles and you, you mentioned the home song, my gosh, that is just, it's, I feel like even though it unfortunately it didn't make the 2017, uh, version of the film, the live, ad, uh, live action adaptation, we hear an instrumental version of it and in the film. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, if we could only have heard Susan's voice right now, because it was just so beautiful. And, uh, I played on the piano every now and again, because it's just, it's a beautiful I want song and just illustrative of mm-hmm. what she longs for once she's um, in, in the castle. And oh, she's she's just great. And she, her she hasn't lost her voice. Did you see her? Um, I think there was a YouTube video that came out maybe a year or two ago where she sang, I won't say I'm in love. And it was from her house. Have you seen that? I don't think I did see that, but I would love to. Uh, you know, you're right. I've, I've heard her sing in other um, outlets in recent years and she hasn't lost her voice and it's such a distinctive voice uh, and that's one thing that I really appreciate I mean it's one of those voices you immediately recognize as Susan Egan yeah yeah it's it's amazing and yeah and the, the music video is actually really good because she's just um, she's just having a lot of fun like she's all made up and and just having fun in her house and walking around and you know just thinking about you know really and embodying Meg in that moment, um, even though it's, you know, she, it's not the animated character who, and I think it's just a great vocal performance in the film itself. Like she's witty and snarky, but jaded. She has some great, really 
uh, sardonic lines. So it's a good, in addition to having a great singing voice, um, she has a, a wonderful speaking voice mm -hmm. that totally epitomized um, that character and such a contrast to Belle. I mean, I can't think of really um, any other main uh, Disney female character who's really a complete opposite from Belle, like Meg. <laughs> it's so true, uh, which speaks to to her range. So our list is off to a really <laughs> yes. a really strong start. Uh, who, yeah. who who's the first on your list after Susan? Yeah, so I guess we'll go uh, back in this way. So um, I'm going to go with another individual who's associated uh, with animated characters, primarily not for singing, but there have been some um, singing parts um, among his set of experiences, and that is Jim Cummings, also known as Winnie the Pooh and Tigger, and uh, Chief Powhatan and Ray and Pete and Darkwing Duck and Ka and King Louie and Cheshire Cat, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, this is an individual who's been with Disney since the 80s, um, primarily for television-related projects, but also, as I mentioned, some theatrical films um, in which he has um, contributed his singing voice. Um, I think of films like the Tigger movie, where we got to hear Tigger sing quite a bit. Um, Ray is just a fun, um, fun little firefly in The Princess and the Frog. He's, as I mentioned, he's uh, the singing voice of Chief Powhatan from Pocahontas. His his work is immense. Like talk about someone who who's extremely talented. He has he can manipulate his voice in so many distinct ways to uh, capture a lot of different flavors depending on the character, the type of character, and the personality as well. And um, he's just he's just a ball of fun. And I think that it's very surprising at this point that he hasn't been recognized because. The, the number of roles is just absolutely staggering. But more than that, um, the quality of the performances are often very distinctive. And, you know, you think of two principal Disney characters like Winnie the Pooh and Tigger who have been around for so many decades. And, um, and certainly, you know, he took over from um, Paul Winchell, the original voice of Tigger. And then, you know, Sterling Holloway was the original Pooh. And, um, both of whom are just obviously iconic in their respective ways. But um, yeah, Cummings is just a, a very strong force in the world of Disney. Uh, I, he gave a great um, little session at the last E23 Expo, it's on YouTube, where they actually highlighted uh, famous voices from Disney animation and he performed some of those roles and people from the audience were able to um, engage as well um, with some of the featured performers. So. Uh, I, I definitely think he's worth celebrating in this way because he will have a lasting impact and I imagine he'll contribute, uh, con continue to contribute uh, voice and characters for many years to come. Uh, what a great choice. Uh, he was not on my list, but really should have been. And I think the only reason is that it didn't occur to me that he hasn't already been inducted. And so I imagine this won't be true of everyone who we discussed today, but he definitely falls in the category uh, of people who, you know, it's a little bit shocking to learn that they haven't already been inducted just because of the sheer, uh, not only quantity, but the weight of their impact. You know, I was just thinking as you were speaking, Brett, had Jim Cummings not been a part of Disney, how different so many things would be. And I mean, in speaking from the perspective of our generation, how different would our childhoods have been uh, had there been no Jim Cummings? Uh, and I also think to 
all the nights that I have spent at Epcot, uh, walking around World Showcase uh, as Illuminations begins. And it is Jim Cummings' voice who ushers that in, uh, or until recently ushered that in. Uh, And so he's very much a theme park legend in that sense as well. Uh, And yeah, I can't come up with a stronger pick than that, really. Thanks. Yeah. And you're right, because I didn't even think about it from that standpoint, but some of the you know, these animated characters that he played have also appeared in the theme parks. Like, you know, you meant, um, well, you're talking about Illuminations, but I think of, you know, the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh and mm-hmm. some of these other examples. And I have to imagine when the Splash Mountain re-theme uh, to Princess and the Frog unfolds that we'll hear Cummings' voice with, you know, the, um, you know, going to take you there, going down the bayou. Like, I can imagine him just singing that. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I it's it's quite quite a remarkable impact over these many years yeah great choice well on the subject of uh of theme parks uh my next choice is he represents a type of induction that i think the disney legends program really hasn't dabbled in yet Uh, but i would like to see them do this type of thing Uh, and it's a gentleman named Derek johnson Uh, He is an Orlando-based musician, composer, conductor, arranger, uh, author, podcaster, uh, pastor, etc., who is perhaps best known to Disney fans as the founder and creator of Voices of Liberty. Uh, And he also spent decades as their manager, their director, their musical director, their producer. Uh, And it was really Derek Johnson who created that uh, group of performers. Uh, They had originally existed outside of Disney uh, under the banner Regeneration. Uh, And I think a talent scout or something like that had come across Derek's group performing in Jacksonville, Florida and asked them to come provide a series of musical performances in Magic Kingdom starting in 1973. Uh, And then they were invited to stage a live nativity at what was then the Disney Village, now Disney Springs, uh, in 1977. Uh, And then that paved the path for the Voices of Liberty, uh, who were performing as part of Epcot's opening day in 1982, uh, and have been a part of Epcot ever since. Uh, Derek Johnson, I think for the first 25 years was officially a part of that. And I believe these days he's more of sort of an outside occasional consultant on the Voices of Liberty's work because the Disney company has essentially fully assumed control uh, of that group. But his contributions don't stop there. Uh, We have a number of albums available to us uh, that are billed as the Liberty Voices as opposed to Voices of Liberty, Uh, but it's the same group singing the same songs that they sing in Epcot, Uh, and they are in fact billed as Derek Johnson's Liberty Voices on the albums, Uh, and that's because Disney didn't want, I guess, to officially release any cast recording from the Voices of Liberty, but they allowed Derek Johnson to do it on his own, and so it is because of him that we have a really great collection of albums of the Voices of Liberty. And I have to mention, of course, that he also wrote the Candlelight Processional, or at least the version of it that we know uh, and have known in Epcot. Uh, He wrote Epcot's original Candlelight Processional, and he was the director and conductor for its first 25 years. And so when I say that this is the type of person that the Disney Legends program hasn't yet recognized, at least that I can recall, you know, it's, it's this sort of locally based um, 
musical contributor who has really been instrumental in the legacy of a specific theme park resort, in this case, Walt Disney World. Uh, and there are so many of these people who aren't necessarily on my list today, but I think of Yeehaw Bob Jackson. Uh, I think of, um, you know, the ragtime piano players um, on, on Main Street in both Disneyland and Magic Kingdom. Uh, I think of Rod Miller, who's done some ragtime Disney albums. Uh, and I would love to see the Legends program start to recognize these people. And I think the very first inductee um, perhaps could and should be Derek Johnson. Wow. Now that's a, a really uh, distinct choice. I can't say I'm actually all that familiar um, with him individually, but I appreciate how you talk about these individuals who are known for their um, musical skills in the parks, because you highlighted several examples uh, there in Walt Disney World. And, and I think um, certainly there's just a, a, just a vast number of cast members who have held these really um, special roles in the parks, um, whether it be um, more visibly or, or more behind the scenes um, for their musical talents. And um, I, I know as someone who enjoys the Voices of Liberty and would always um, make an effort to see a performance there as just an example um, of being just a, a real representation of, of someone's quality and, and ultimately the, the breadth of their, their work where you know, there's so many things to experience at Epcot, but to, to make a specific effort to, to listen to one of those um, beautiful uh, choral performances is just um, striking. So I can't say I'm very familiar with him, but I'm glad you use this as an opportunity um, to raise some awareness. Yeah, and it's interesting too to think about the impact that he's had even on Disneyland because, of course, the Candlelight Processional originated there in Walt's days, but as a very different type of show than the one that um, is seen there today. And I, I, it's my understanding, I haven't had the chance to see the Candlelight Processional in Disneyland, but it's my understanding that the program there today borrows heavily from Epcot's. Uh, and so in that way, uh, Derek Johnson's contributions even extend uh, to the other coast. Oh, that's really cool. Well, thanks for sharing more about him. I, I definitely have a greater understanding now. So thank you. Um, so to um, shift gears a little bit. Um, so we've talked um, already about some great vocal performances and, and folks who uh, are associated with the parks. Um, the, the next person um, that I'd like to mention is connected to the parks um, for a number of uh, contributions, but I, I view as being uh, much more associated uh, with the world of Disney film. And I was, and I was trying to figure out in, in developing this list, Aaron, like I've, I've thankfully through this podcast, I've had the opportunity to talk with some really incredible uh, people connected to Disney music. And I was wondering, you know, should, should I make reference to them? And like, would I be dissing people who I have had on the show, but I'm not. And ultimately I told myself, you know what, I'll, I'll give myself um, a like the opportunity to recognize a couple of them um, for their massive contributions to Disney music. And so the first um, individual I'd like to uh, recognize in this space uh, is composer John Debney, um, who is basically, a, 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 he was a Disney baby. He grew up um, on the Disney studio lot. He knew the Sherman brothers from a young age. His father was Lou Debney, who was a producer for tons of projects, uh, many TV shows. Um, he. You know, he was, uh, I remember when, when John was on the podcast, he was talking about how he was, he was, uh, his father Lou was just standing around the studio very early on selling papers and, and he kind of rose up the ranks um, up across, you know, the, the Walt Disney Studios over, 
you know the 40s 50s into the 60s and and, and John Debney um, is just an incredible musical talent whose compositions um, started out in the 80s for some Disney TV projects but he became better known in the 1990s for some really notable films including um, one that I know you love and, and certainly I appreciate too which is Hocus Pocus. Um, some of his films have been uh, the, the films themselves perhaps weren't uh, the best movies in the world like I think of an Inspector Gadget which was a fun adaptation not the best movie ever made but the score was very um, quirky and and fun I love the opening for that uh, The Emperor's New Groove which is fantastic the Princess Diaries films um, most recently um, one of the major projects that got him a lot of critical acclaim and rightfully, rightly so, was the 2016 adaptation of The Jungle Book. Um, got a lot of praise for that because it was just a really stirring score, very much honoring the original from 67, also bringing uh, a bit of a contemporary touch as well. But there was just such a classic feeling there. In the parks, he's been responsible for uh, scores like uh, Haunted Mansion Holiday, Phantom Manor, uh, It's a Small World in Paris. Um, among other projects. I primarily associate with him with the films, but certainly his theme park influence has been another component of his career. He's a very prolific individual. He's, I think he's, I have noted he's developed scores for more than a dozen Disney films over the past 30 years. Uh, he's just a remarkable person, very, very decent as well. I, I love the chance to interview him, but more importantly, when I think about his um, body of work, it's is quite impactful. Those scores um, that I talked with him about on, on the show, Hocus Pocus, Emperor's New Groove, and Princess Diaries are three film scores that I listen to again and again because they are so um, capturing the feeling of excitement and whimsy. And in the case of the Princess Diaries, just very, um, at times, just very classical. And um, there's a beautiful waltz in there. He's just a fantastic composer and just a really great person who, has been around the company so long and has served in so many different roles that I think he should be a Disney legend. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, so once again, this is our second instance of overlap uh, between our two lists. And uh, I know we aren't ranking our suggestions today, uh, but I had ranked uh, my own list just for, for my own reference. And uh, John Debney was actually my number one uh, pick for today. Oh, wow. Uh, of course, uh, you and I may both be a little bit biased because we both have um, something of a personal connection with John. And by the way, I loved uh, hearing his conversation with you on your show, Brett. Uh, and uh, as some of your listeners may recall, I wrote a book about the movie Hocus Pocus and John and his wife Lola have been just so incredibly gracious uh, and supportive um, toward and of me and that project, uh, which has really just meant the world, especially as someone who grew up with the name John Debney being such a central part of the Disney magic. I mean, you know, I would, I was entranced by the movie Hocus Pocus and seeing his name on those opening credits, you know, every single time that I watched the film and then slowly over time, noticing all these other projects that he uh, was involved with. And then later learning about his and his and his father's history at the studio. Uh, it's really just staggering and awe-inspiring. Uh, and then to look at 
that body of work and to know that it comes from someone who's, you know, just so kind and caring and, and friendly and supportive and all of that. Um, I just think the world of him and, and you know, could not uh, co-sign more enthusiastically uh, your selection of him for this list. And I would also just highlight, in addition to, of course, Hocus Pocus and The Jungle Book, by the way, I am someone who often finds that sort of an action adventure live action film that the scores in those films can be all sort of one of a kind and kind of run in, you know, run into each other. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Jungle Book score is so distinctive to be a part of that genre. Um, so you noted that he received a lot of acclaim for that. And I think that's why. Uh, of course, in the parks, Spectra Magic, which there's probably no piece of you know Magic Kingdom music that more instantly and powerfully transports me to a specific place and time for which I have such fierce nostalgia um, and such warm memories. And that's entirely a credit to that sort of waltz-based piece of music that he did for that uh, indelible, legendary parade. Um, even something as as seemingly minor as the Walt Disney Pictures castle logo that uh, that appeared yeah. um, throughout the 80s and 90s. And I mean, I say minor only because it's just a few seconds at the start of a film, but it's really not minor at all. I mean, that was the sound of the Disney brand at a time when Disney was sort of firing in all cylinders. And again, for our generation, Brad, I think that... Um, piece of music is just like carved in our collective hearts uh, and that's John Debney you know and so I it just it's absolutely incredible uh, the man needs to be a Disney legend and I hope to see it happen soon oh I'm glad you recognize those few other examples of, of work that I hadn't um, when I shared my initial reasons yeah it's just my gosh I you know, I, as I said, when I was constructing this list, I'm thinking, oh, there's now a few biases because I've talked, I've had the opportunity to talk with a few of these great people. And certainly you've been in this world of um, Disney history and fandom to have had the opportunity to, to connect with really wonderful people yourself. And, um, and it's just such an honor. And ultimately I'm like, oh, are those biases seeping in? But I'm thinking to myself, you know what, even if I hadn't talked with the, the gentleman, uh, he would certainly fit my list. Obviously, he was at the top of your list, which is great. And um, and I'm just I'm, I'm hoping that the, the company can recognize him among these other folks that we're recognizing in that manner, because talk about um, quality and quantity. Um, boy, he definitely fits the bill. Oh, for sure. And I mean, it, it, not to keep harping on Hocus Pocus, but in my view, that score is a masterpiece. It is an actual masterpiece, yes. particularly of, of family film composition. It's just incredible. And to know that he did the whole thing in a matter of weeks. I mean, it's just truly stunning. And that it was his first feature film. I mean, what a debut. I'm just, I'm in awe of the talent. Uh, and I also want to just note that uh, he is involved in the upcoming Disney Plus, I think, remake of Home Alone. Yes, yeah. It's a movie that originally um, had, I think, one of the all-time great family film scores, of course, from John Williams. And so I'm so eager to see what comes from John Debney sort of revisiting the stomping grounds of John Williams, because these are two of the greats in film composition. Yeah, you absolutely got that right. So um, many cheers for John Debney. Aaron, how about um, you kind of share your next pick since I realized we both uh, recognize John here. Yeah. Okay. So my next pick is another one that, you know, maybe doesn't fall cleanly within the lines of the type of thing that the Disney legends uh, program always recognizes, but certainly I, I can, 
I could foresee them recognizing him one day. And that is Paul Williams, uh, who is a man who's been involved in many different facets of the entertainment industry, but is perhaps best known for his work as a songwriter and composer for the Muppets. Uh, and specifically, there are four major Muppet projects that he was involved with. Um, so he wrote all of the songs and I believe also the score for Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas uh, and also for the Muppet movie, uh, the Muppet Christmas Carol and uh, a number of contributions for or to the Muppet show. And so it is because of Paul Williams that we have songs like Rainbow Connection and moving right along and one more sleep till Christmas and when love is gone slash when love is found. And, uh, you know, these are, you know, hallmark Muppet songs and, and they come from Paul Williams, but his contributions don't stop there. Uh, he also has appeared as an actor in a number of um, Disney productions, uh, often in smaller roles, but uh, he does appear as an elf in A Muppet's Christmas Letters to Santa. Uh, he has a small role, I think, in the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids TV show. Uh, he had a supporting role in the movie The Night They Saved Christmas, uh, which is a great 80s live action Disney Christmas movie. Uh, and so both within and outside of the Muppet sphere, uh, he's been sort of linked to the Disney brand or what would eventually develop into the Disney brand after they acquired the Muppets uh, for many, many decades now. And uh, it's just a, um, a well of talent. Yeah, that's a really interesting pick there. Because, And I was thinking, too, as we were developing our list, because we didn't talk about it, would we recognize folks um, who are associated with brands or properties that eventually became um, incorporated into Disney, like the Muppets, um, and certainly mentioned some of his um, kind of di more Disney brand uh, roles as well. But boy, Rainbow Connection, like, how can you go wrong with that? That's that's the, the Muppets anthem, really. It's Kermit's anthem. And um, to have also been involved in the Muppets Christmas Carol, which was um, released by Disney before Disney acquired the Muppets. And of course, is a holiday classic um, with some really fun tunes in there too. So boy, that's a, that's a really good pick there, Aaron. Yeah, thanks. And I think you know, what you just mentioned about Rainbow Connection being the Muppets anthem really does sort of make the case because even if we were to draw a dividing line, which I don't think the Disney Legends program does at all draw a line between acquired properties versus non-acquired, as we have seen in recent years. Uh, but uh, even if we had to sort of throw out everything that came with the Muppets or came from the Muppets at a time before Disney acquired them, you know, we would still have the Muppet Christmas Carol because that was a Disney production from the get go. And then I, I would hope that rainbow connection would sort of stand in a class all its own precisely because it is even today, I think the Anthem, as you say, for this Disney property, which is the Muppets collectively, like as a brand or a sub brand, I think they're sort of represented musically by that song. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's only a matter of time till all the voice actors from The Simpsons are Disney legends. <laughs> and, you know, we, you know, we've already seen the Marvel influence and, and certainly with uh, Lucasfilm as well. So Fox is, uh, you know, on the docket. And, and really, I think the, there have been so few people associated with the Muppets recognized. I think, is it just Jim Henson? Or has anybody else, like, really saliently connected to the Muppets been honored in that manner? Gosh, you know, I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. I have to do some research. I mean, certainly I think if Frank Oz has not been recognized, he absolutely should be. So Yeah, he and, hasn't. 
Okay, so yeah, I mean, he obviously he has he's done musical performances too, so he could be on this list. There are just so many people who could be. And gosh, Brett, I had not even thought about The Simpsons. Um, I'm glad I hadn't because it might have been overwhelming in preparing for this. But you know, I love The Simpsons, and um, there's quite a musical legacy associated with that show as well. I mean, there are albums and albums um, filled with songs that have been included in the Simpsons over the years, a number of which are parodies of Disney songs. Uh, and so I imagine we could really probably find quite a few people in the world of the Simpsons to add to this list too. There you go. There you go. And, and then it'll be the stars of Avatar and the stars of Alien <laughs> and anything else that's uh, Fox, but you know, maybe, Hey, you know, it's Sigourney Weaver. She's, she's had a few Disney roles. Why not? So there you go. Um, so my next pick is uh, a complete, uh, we're going to take a little bit of a, a time machine here because I wanted to, I realized a lot of the folks that I wanted to honor are still alive or have recently contributed to Disney in some capacity. And I know a number of Disney legends from the early days of Disney have been honored, um, but one individual who I must admit, I'm not even terribly familiar with um, by name has not been honored as a Disney legend. And his name was uh, Burt Lewis, who was a composer um, primarily for the Mickey Mouse and Silly Symphonies shorts um, in the earliest days of Disney animation. So we're talking um, the early thirties here. He'd eventually um, do some work for Warners, um, but he took over, um, Lewis took over from Carl Stalling, who um, was a big force in, in Disney music during those early days. Um, He's uncredited. He, you can't even find a heck of a lot on the individual. Um, looking online, I know in um, uh, James Bone's book on music and Disney animated features, um, which covers the earliest days of Disney up, up until the Jungle Book, there are some references uh, to Burt Lewis, um, who often collaborated with other notable musicians of the day. So folks like Frank Churchill, um, who was a, a major force in, in the company, uh, you know, I think of Churchill, Lee Harleen, Ned Washington, like all of these really famous figures um, in the first couple decades of Disney music have been honored. But Burt Lewis, while perhaps not as recognizable a name, and like I said, I can't say I'm, I'm too familiar um, with, with his name and, and um, his very, very specific uh, contributions, but the, the notion of that he was... Uh, that he was a composer of these really instrumental shorts that shaped the Disney style. What is What does Disney animation look like? And consequently, what is the associated sound? I think for those reasons, makes him someone worth learning more about um, and hopefully more can be uncovered on him. Um, I haven't checked out the, um, at least not recently, there was a book on the Silly Symphonies um, that J.B. Kaufman wrote. Um, was it? Yeah, I think it was J.B. Kaufman. Um, but ultimately Burt Lewis's name is not as much in the discourse. And I think a Disney legend um, is also someone where I've seen where maybe some folks haven't heard about them because they have smaller roles in the company or they're not as visible, but ultimately were impactful um, for their particular contribution. So I think Burt Lewis should get some more attention. That's such a great choice, Brett. And, you know, if you had just said the name Burt Lewis, I don't know that I could have told you anything about him or even would have recognized the name, but you just made a really compelling case. And I'm so glad that you found someone from that era to include, you know, when I 
set down to make my list. Of course, I'm thinking of, um, of, you know, the Lee Harleens, the Frank Churchills, even fast forwarding a little in time, you know, George Bruns, uh, and these sort of titanic names from early Disney music history. Uh, and you certainly want to recognize someone from back in those days. But as you say, so many of the big names have already been inducted. And so I'm gl so glad that you found someone uh, who hasn't yet been recognized. And I think you're absolutely right that one of the hopefully goals uh, to which the Disney Legends program aspires is to educate uh, the public, the fandom, and to shine light on people whose contributions were really, really substantial and meaningful, but somehow just sort of escaped the discourse over time. Uh, and so I think it's a great pick. Thank you. Uh, well, how about you share your next pick, Aaron? Okay, so I'm going to, for my next pick, actually mention two names, which I hope is fair to do. Uh, sure. They, Sure. So, okay. So they did each have um, careers unto themselves, but they are best known as a songwriting duo, uh, much like the Sherman brothers. And that is Joel Hirshhorn and Al Kasha, uh, whose oh, wow. yeah. contributions yeah, are, are many fold uh, for Disney, but they are perhaps best known for having written the uh, song score and the, um, the film score for Peach Dragon. Uh, which I know I'm like a broken record every time I come on this show or any show, frankly, I have to talk about Peach Dragon, but uh, I absolutely love these songs. Peach Dragon, the original, of course, uh, is a movie musical that is just chock full. Uh, I, I forget the exact count, but I, I think there's something like 16 songs in that movie. Uh, and they've written all of them. And uh, they also wrote the score, which was um, arranged and, and orchestrated by Erwin Costell. Costell. Uh, and but but they've done much more than just Peach Dragon. Uh, so there's the Disney short Small One, uh, which is a really charming um, sort of heartfelt Christmas short that I watch every single year at Christmas. Uh, and it was made contemporaneously with Peach Dragon. And so uh, not only did they write the score and the songs for that short, um, the title song for that, by the way, is just really memorable and touching. Uh, but also there's some of the voice cast from Peach Dragon is in that short. Uh, but they also contributed to the theme parks. Uh, in Epcot, the Universe of Energy, all of the music from that pavilion as it originally opened uh, was written by Hershorn and Kasha. So Universe of Energy, the Field of Flow song, which is such a bop. Uh, I mean, you, you want to change the energy in a room? <laughs> You put on Universe of Energy, Feel the Flow. Uh, and then, of course, there's the more, more along the lines of a ballad, Energy, You Make the World Go Round. Um, they did even like the exit music and just the area music for Universe of Energy. Uh, and so, you know, from parks to movies to short films, uh, they've done it all. And I think um, somehow they often aren't included in the discussion, but... Um, these guys have done a lot. And by the way, they've won Oscars, not for their work um, with Disney, but they won two Oscars for Best Original Song for The Poseidon Adventure and The Towering Inferno. Uh, they won a Tony for Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Uh, they wrote music for Elvis, Roy Orbison, Aretha Franklin, Donna Summer. Uh, and so these are guys who've done big things in the music world, both within and outside of Disney, but their names aren't exactly household names, uh, but I, I would love to see them nominated. nominated. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, I was wondering too, because there was a, a pair of people, not, not these individuals where I'm thinking, oh, should I include them? And would they count as one? And I think totally because it's, it's almost like a, 
a Mencken and Ashman situation, right? Yeah. So people who are just so uh, closely paired together. And, you know, you mentioned Pete's Dragon, which of course perhaps was their most um, impactful contribution for Disney. Um, they were nominated for an Oscar for for that, for, um, for Candle on the Water, um, as well as for the score. So it's not often where Disney films are, are recognized in both of those capacities. So that's uh, a notable piece of recognition and universe of energy. My gosh, like I obviously, I did not experience the original attraction, but I'm uh, very familiar with those pieces of music and they're just fun. And like, who would have ever thought that there'd be catchy tunes based on a, a very abstract term like energy, but there you go. You have great songwriters. Yeah. Yeah, gosh, they're so fun. And they do have a 70s sensibility um, to their work, or it might just be that that's the decade from which their most well-known works um, came forth. But, you know, absolutely candle on the water. I think we are reaching a point in time where that song has had a chance to sort of become forgotten and has not. Uh, we continue to see, in fact, I've, I've seen an increase in recent years um, of cover songs or cover versions of that song being included on various compilations. And so it does sort of seem that it's going to have a legacy uh, that lives perhaps even beyond the generation that grew up with that film. Uh, and so, yeah, the, I think for them to have gotten two Oscar nominations for Peach Dragon uh, speaks a lot for itself. And I tell you, I wanted to include Helen Reddy on my list. Uh, I didn't, yeah. but uh, of course she was the actress uh, in Peach Dragon who performed that song and, and who recently passed away. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I just think that song itself deserves um, mention and recognition. Yeah, yeah, I was actually debating over recognizing Helen Reddy as well. Um, I don't think, I can't think of others instances in which she's been part of Disney or at least not those that come to the forefront of my mind but that was a great performance and, and Kasha passed away recently too um, of Parkinson's so um, so yeah both of them um, have left us in the past year and it's um, sad because those songs are catchy I, I have my own thoughts about the original film um, that aren't necessarily the most favorable on on all fronts I must admit but let me tell you I love the songs from from that movie and and they actually appear um, in a sense in the parks because uh, at least the last that I remember the Walt like the Walt Disney World information channel that would be playing in the resort TVs they have scores like different instrumental versions of classic Disney tunes. I remember hearing the Brazzle Dazzle Day and It's Not Easy um, among others um, that are uh, produced by them um, as falling under that uh, umbrella. So their, their work still lives on in, in different ways that are perhaps unexpected as well. Uh, I'm so glad you highlighted the, the theme park application outside of Epcot because uh, we hear those songs appear not only, as you say, on like resort TV and the phone line and that sort of thing, and they still do to this day play there, but also they're part of the uh, Main Street Electrical Parade, as well as the Electrical Water Pageant. And so every single night at Walt Disney World, uh, the music of Hirshhorn and Kasha it continues on. Fantastic. Um, great choices there. Love that. Um, so I'm going to... Uh, head back to the Broadway stage. Um, I want to include a few theatrical people in the mix. And um, this is someone who I've, unfortunately I haven't seen her perform, I would love to. And she actually starred as two um, main characters um, for the respective openings of 
of the productions, one for The Lion King, the other Aida. Um, and I'm talking about Heather Headley, who um, started um, in, in Di for Disney um, playing Nala for the um, opening cast of The Lion King, who her notable song there is Shadowland, which is haunting and really a fine illustration of her vocal prowess. And uh, similarly for Aida, which uh, didn't receive the best reviews um, from certain folks when it premiered on Broadway in 2000, but ultimately garnered her a Tony Award and a lot of love on very much deservedly so. Um, those were just two really special roles and um, I, I think only one performer could do it justice. I'm very familiar with the soundtracks for um, both the shows. I, I've seen a touring production of Lion King um, like many folks have. Never saw Aida, but I'm uh, very well acquainted with the soundtrack, um, which is just lovely. You have songs uh, from Elton John and Tim Rice, um, also, of course, uh, associated with The Lion King. Um, and she she also uh, performed the end credit song for The Lion King to Simba's Pride. Um, she co-sang it with um, that piece, and it's called Love Will Find a Way. Um, she hasn't been as closely linked uh, with Disney in recent years, but I think it's really worth celebrating someone who, who basically launched uh, these characters on the Broadway stage in such significant ways and who has just an incredibly powerful voice. And as an actress, she's um, just, uh, just mesmerizing really because of, she just immerses herself in her respective roles. There are some recordings online of, of, um, of these performances. Uh, more recently, I've seen her as uh, Gwen Garrett, the chief operating officer on uh, Chicago Med. Not a Disney project, but I'm loving that show right now. Uh, it's a recurring character. And yeah, Heather Headley is just a, a dynamite performer and I'd love to see her honored in this way. Yeah, you said it, powerful voice, beautiful voice. Um, she's such a big deal in the history of Disney theatrical. Uh, she was not on my list, but again, should have been. Uh, it's a great pick. Uh, you know, I got to see the Color Purple revival on Broadway a few years back, and uh, I did not have the chance to see Heather Headley. I saw Jennifer Hudson, and I'm very glad to have seen Jennifer Hudson, but soon thereafter, Heather Headley um, took over that role. And I always thought, man, I would love to have seen it with her too and would love to have the chance to see her perform someday. You know, I always wonder, might she someday be a part of the Disney uh, or the Festival of the Arts Disney on Broadway concert series at Epcot? And I don't know if maybe Heather Headley is too big a name uh, to perform as part of that series. Perhaps she is. I always wonder that about Titus Burgess as well. But there are a lot of these people who sort of came up through Disney theatrical and have gone on to do big things elsewhere. Uh, and she's certainly one of them. So it's a great pick. I will say, Aaron, you know, you mentioned as far as like, is she too big a name? I was watching her Tony Award winning um, when she won the Tony and her speech and it was just so beautiful and she was crying and so thankful and she basically said, I will work for Disney for the rest of my life if they, <laughs> if they hire me uh, for the roles and um, I don't know if there just hasn't been um, opportunities or, or the right fit, but certainly I think there there could be ways in which um, Heather could could contribute to Disney, even even for like uh, I think of like voicing an animated character because mm -hmm. she has a very distinct voice, um, and and mind you, obviously that would lend itself to a singing role as well. But 
boy, she's just, she's just incredible. Um, do you have a favorite song of hers from Aida by chance? Oh gosh. I don't know. It's so hard for me to pick a favorite, especially off the top of my head, but I love Aida. I love that cast recording. I love her voice in it. And I'm very glad that you um, brought Aida into the discussion because that's one of those shows that's just perennially left out of the conversation, uh, unfortunately. And I know there's been a lot of talk about Disney dusting that project off and doing something with it in the future. And so I hope that that changes, but um, yeah, it, the Aida we all know, we know with her voice as part of it. Yeah, and there were only a few actresses who uh, who played the main role mm-hmm. following Headley's departure. It was on Broadway, I think, four years, but there were only a few actresses who um, played her. So, um, yeah, pretty pretty impactful. I, for one, really love uh, which one of her main tunes, which is The Past is Another Land, um, which really allows her to show her range. And then her ballads with... Um, Adam Pascal's uh, Rodimace. Um, there's several good ones, including Enchantment Passing Through. Uh, yeah. I just, I just, elaborate Lives. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Love Elaborate Lives. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, there's just so many good ones. Yeah. I. So, anyways, let's uh, let's recognize Heather Headley. So, uh, yeah, Written in the Stars. By the way, just to answer yes. your question, maybe that's my favorite. I love Written in the Stars. Um, both the uh, version that's on the cast recording with Heather Headley, uh, but also the the pop radio version with Elton John and Leanne Rhymes. By the way, Leanne Rhymes uh, <laughs> was a candidate for my list of 10. She didn't quite make it, but she's done a lot too with that song and, and other things. And there is still so much more to come in our next episode of Notably Disney. Thanks again to Aaron for joining me on the first part. And you'll hear more from Aaron and me next time on the podcast. So stay tuned. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company. Is it written in the stars?